Leo Tolstoy had everything one might desire. His parents were members of the Russian aristocracy. He was a pro pro prodigious student and, of course, uh, became a literary icon. His books, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, were wild successes. He married and had a family and lived in a large estate. His works received countless accolades. And by the time he entered his 50s, his legacy as an artist of the utmost caliber was assured. Most people can only dream of achieving a tiny sliver of his renown, wealth, and influence. And yet in his, autobiograph his autobiographical work called Confessions, he writes this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every person from the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. As I had found by experience, it was this, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? Is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? That's a huge question. What's the point in anything if death is the end? Money, work, art, love, do they all just help us pass the time as it inevitably trickles away from us? And it's a question that, if we're honest, isn't far from any one of us, right? Though, you know, in our modern setting, we spend huge amount of time and money distracting ourselves from it, right? The constant presence and noise of various technologies help us drown out any such thoughts that try to rear their heads when we're quiet or alone. The idolization, particularly in media, of like youthful, carefree life, you know, uh, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50. That's our narrative, right? Think young, or the ever-growing market for creams and surgeries as we seek to curate our bodies and skin against any signs of aging. I came across some slogans the other day. Anti-aging cream, the ultimate solution to all your problems. It's impressive, hey? <laughs> Everyone will chase when you apply anti-aging cream to your face, apparently. <laughs> when you have the right cream, you have the world. And then lastly, my favorite, your beauty is our duty. <laughs> <laughs> distract, 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 right? And yet, if we're honest, Tolstoy's question is never really too far from any of us. It's the ever-present undercurrent that sort of gnaws at us in our happier moments, where we just feel how fleeting they are, or is unavoidably loud in our sadder moments, and perhaps louder still, in our most successful moments. I read of the Olympic diver Chris Mears uh, a while ago talking about winning the gold medal in Rio 2016 and how if um, it was after that that he plummeted into deep depression. He said this, for years I told myself I'd be happy when I get this. When I get to this position, I'll be happy. And then I got it and I wasn't. And he plummeted. You see, success can be the place where the questions around the meaninglessness of life just sound their loudest. 
Is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? Well, welcome to church. Happy Easter. <laughs> it's great to see you here. Um, but seriously, the good news is this. Easter has everything to do with that question. Everything to do with that question. Almost nothing to do with bunnies, chicks, or chocolate. But everything to do with that most fundamental of questions. And the answer that Easter gives is yes, a massive, resounding, hope-drenched yes. Yes, there is meaning to your life that will not be destroyed by the grave. Yes, there is hope. And yes, there is purpose that survives death. Yes, yes, yes. Easter has everything to do with that question because death is at the heart of the Easter story. A story that claims that Jesus conquered it by rising from it. Now, I'm only too aware of how that sounds, right? Particularly if you are here and you wouldn't maybe even call yourself a Christian. Uh, though, to be honest, um, for many of us who are Christians, it still sounds quite a bit crazy. Like, I've been a Christian for years and honestly, it's an uncomfortable thing to say that, yes, I believe that Jesus was brutally killed and after three days being buried, he rose up from the dead. It's just uncomfortable, not, not really even because I'm concerned that other people will think I'm weird, but just because I think I'm weird when I say it. Does anyone else have this experience? You know, I was brought up with the same science curriculum that I suspect most of us were, and it, this just doesn't fit with that. I've been, as I'm sure many of us have, to my fair share of funerals. And in every case, without fail, the deceased person has stayed dead. I have no scientific grounds for resurrection. I have no experiential grounds for resurrection. And I have both scientific grounds and experiential grounds for the dead people staying dead, right? And you do too. Or you should do. <laughs> so it's not easy to believe in resurrection. And if that's you, then I'm with you. And so actually, most, nearly all of those who wrote the earliest accounts of Jesus that we have, no one expected resurrection or found the idea easy to stomach. You know, sometimes we think, oh, back then, they were just more mythical then, you know, less scientific. They just believed all sorts of stuff. And it's what C.S. Lewis and others call chronological snobbery. You know, the idea that we're just cleverer, previous ages were ignorant, they were unintelligent, they just embraced everything and anything. The truth is that they also knew that dead people stayed dead. Look at some of the accounts. If you struggle with the idea of resurrection, then you're in good company. No one is expecting it. No one, as the author Andy Stanley puts it, is at the tomb on Sunday morning counting down 10, 9, 8, 7. No one is there doing that. No one is. Just look. Look at the accounts. So the story so far is that Jesus has been teaching and doing amazing things, and many, many people are following him. They believe that he was the long-expected rescuer, the one who was sent by God, and that's what they thought he was. That's where their hopes were. But the religious authorities in Rome saw him as a threat, and they decided to kill him. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, stripped naked, mocked, publicly nailed to a cross where he died. And just to make sure he was dead, the Romans, who knew how to kill people, put a spear through his side. And then he was buried in a tomb. And at this point, no one is expecting resurrection. And neither 
Neither would we, right? No one is. Dead people stayed dead. That's our experience. That was their experience too. Jesus and his movement at this point is dead and buried. It's over. So look at the accounts. Look at Jesus' disciples. He's, all the people around this story, look at his disciples. They're not waiting with expectation for the rising of Jesus. They're crushed and they're terrified. In Matthew's report, as soon as Jesus is arrested, he writes this, then all the disciples left him and fled. They just fled. Peter, the leading disciple, on whom the church will be built, said Jesus, famously denies that he even knows Jesus three times. Most of them aren't even mentioned as present at the crucifixion, and they are not even the ones who take Jesus' body, dead body down from the cross. Others do that. They're not heroically waiting for Jesus to defeat death. They're terrified and they're hiding. And even, even when they hear the claim that Jesus is alive, we read in Luke chapter 24, it says this, but these words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They didn't say, yes, finally it's happened, what we'd all been hoping for and waiting for. We knew it would. They, didn't, they did not believe it when they heard it. The disciple Thomas goes even further. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, he says. How very 21st century of him. The point is that they were not sitting around expecting resurrection. Instead, all of their hopes about Jesus have come crashing down. The whole thing is over. Jesus is dead and his little movement is over. Look at the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. They think it's over too. They're just relieved that they've done away with this troublemaker. When they're planning to arrest Jesus, we read in John 11 this, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. So the Jewish leaders were concerned about the threat that Jesus posed to their authority and also in provoking Rome's anger. But with the death of Jesus, this threat is dealt with. No Jesus, no threat to their authority, no danger from Rome. Their only concern is about Jesus' body being stolen. So they go to the Romans and they ask for a guard to be placed over the tomb so that no theft could occur. But like the disciples, they are sure that it's over. Jesus is dead and so is his little movement. It's over. Look at the Romans. Pilate and Herod are the two characters we find representing Rome who ruled Israel at the time. But the political situation was really fragile There'd been numerous Jewish uprisings and attempts to overthrow Rome, but Rome had responded by crushing them severely. Any sign of an uprising or this Messiah language of political challenge was taken really seriously, particularly during the Passover when the Jews remembered how God had saved them from Egypt and hopes about liberation from Rome ran high. So wanting to stamp out any potential uprising wanting to keep the Jewish leaders happy and on side, and wanting to put the fear of Rome into anyone who might put a foot out of line, Pilate orders Jesus' crucifixion. 
the statement of Rome's power and the futility, the danger of resistance. You know, you try anything and look what happens to you. Like the disciples, like the religious leaders, Rome is sure that it's over. Jesus is dead, and so is his little movement. And look at the women in these stories. Many women followed Jesus. He treated them just with such dignity and value in a world and a time when no one else did, that many gravitated to him. They're in all the reports of the crucifixion, weeping and devastated by the unfolding events. In Luke's account, we read in chapter 23, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So they see Jesus die on the Friday. They see him buried, but there isn't time to do the customary care for the dead body because the next day is the Sabbath. No work could be done. So they go home devastated and they spend their time preparing spices and perfumes. And they're preparing spices and perfumes because that was standard Jewish practice for dead bodies. And then they come to the tomb early on Sunday morning and we we read why. On the first day of the week, that's the Sunday morning, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they prepared. So they're going to the tomb to finish the burial process. They've been preparing spices and they've come to put them on Jesus' dead body. That's why they're there. To put spices on a dead body, they're convinced it's over. Andy Stanley puts it this way, nobody was expecting no body. Nobody was expecting no body, right? And what's more, when they don't find a body, their assumption is that it's been stolen. That's it, nothing more elaborate. If you read in John 20, it says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and she said, he's risen from the dead. She didn't. She said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. They don't know where they've laid him. They don't think resurrection. They had no category for that. That wasn't on the horizon. They don't think that. And neither would we, right? Neither would we. They think stolen, not resurrection. No one thinks that. They are sure that it's over. They agree with the disciples and the Jewish leaders in Rome and anyone else who witnessed these events that Jesus is dead and so is his little movement. So just... Let's just pause there for a second, right? On that Sunday morning, that's where they are. Just pause there for a second. So we have the Jewish leaders relieved that this movement has been crushed. Things can go back to normal. It's over. We have Rome. Any talk of a king or a messiah, any danger of uprising has been crushed. It's over. We have these women devastated and making preparations for Jesus' body. As it begins to decompose, it's over. And we have the disciples hiding in fear, hopeless. The crucifixion means they were wrong about Jesus, wrong about everything that he said he was and they believed he was. It's over. Every hope had come crashing down as Jesus was humiliated and killed in the most horrifying way. The religious leaders in Rome are relieved. Jesus is dead and so is his movement. The disciples and the women are devastated. Jesus is dead and so is his movement. They all agree on that one thing, it's 
over. It's done. Just, let's just pause there. It's a Sunday morning, right? Fast forward just over one month, and historians estimate between five to 10,000 Jews claiming to follow and worship Jesus. Fast forward again, just over 300 years to the city of Rome, a place that Jesus never went to, to Rome who killed and crushed Jesus and his movement. So the emperor Theodosius I, and the moment where he proclaims Christianity, this Jesus movement that he crushed, that Rome put an end to, where he proclaims Christianity to be the state religion for the entire Roman Empire, outlawing the great Roman pantheon and its myriad of gods. And then fast forward 2,000 years to today, where over 2.4 billion people say they are followers of this Jesus across every continent, every country, every culture, every racial and generational boundary, across social, class, and economic boundaries, followers of Jesus in prisons and in palaces, in hospitals, in universities, in politics, in government, in cafes, in department stores, in Silicon Valley tech companies, we hope, in you name it. Jesus is the source and focus of the most extraordinary architecture, the most Um, profound works of literature, the most beautiful artwork, the most stunning musical compositions, the most extensive works of theology and the deepest musings of philosophy. He is where we date year zero from. He was the motivation behind the first hospitals, universities, the foundation of our legal, moral, and ethical principles. So remember where we paused Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? What happened? Right? We have to ask that. What happened? Sometimes uh, my little boy Ezra, who's seven, sends me notes like this one. (laughs) Dude, Dad, I love you. You are the best dad in the entire world. The kindest and most wonderful dad ever. Love from Ezra. That's, sometimes he just hits the nail on the head, you know? <laughs> it's lovely, it's warm, it's just... But then, a few days ago, I found this one in his... Uh, I don't know if you can read that, but it says this. It says, a uh, list of worst people ever. Uh, first one is, I don't, know who, uh, I don't know what Arthur did. Uh, second one is Reuben, his brother. Fourth, his mum. I'm Dave. <laughs> I don't even get dad. <laughs> I love that, like, he's just gone up there and he's like, I must not forget this, you know, and make a note. How did we get, though, from the first note to the second note? How do we get from the first to the second? There's a story, right? There has to be. There's a reason. Something happened. There's cause and effect. Something triggered Ezra's list. And it happens so regularly with kids, you know, one is crying and, um, or they go from happy to crying like that. And you're like, what has happened? And, and I'll be talking to the other kids. I'll be like, so uh, Jesse wasn't crying and now Jesse is crying. So can someone explain why, how have we moved from here to here? And they'll be like, nothing happened. Nothing happened, dad. I'll be like, mm-hmm, of course. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Uh, 
but why is he crying? You know, what, how did we get from there to there? And eventually it'll be like, well, maybe I accidentally brushed him with my foot. And you're like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Something happened. How do we get from dead, buried movement that everyone agrees is over to the most staggering, explosive growth of the church? How do we get from terrified, hi- terrified hiding followers of Jesus to fearless evangelists, nearly all of whom were martyred in the most horrible ways? How do we get from where we paused to where we are? How do we get from Peter fearfully denying that he even knows Jesus to his boldly proclaiming Jesus in the middle of Jerusalem, regardless of threats and imprisonment? How do we get from where we paused to where we are? How do we get from Rome killing Jesus to Rome claiming Jesus? From this dead movement to 10,000 Jews within a month. How do we account for that? And those things are just kind of facts, like everyone agrees with those things. There isn't really debate. That's, all of that is just a, a, a problem that's sort of agreed on historically. We all, whatever our belief system, theist, atheist, agnostic, we're all confronted with the problem of Jesus and the emergence of the church. I'm not saying anything controversial at all there. The question of how do we have what we have is, the one, is one that confronts all of us. How do we get from where we paused to where we are? Something significant must have happened, right? And the earliest documents available do have an answer. And it's an answer that the authors themselves didn't expect and they found hard to believe. We find the reports in the Bible. Um, But when they were actually written, you know, the authors weren't writing the Bible The Bible wasn't compiled for almost 300 years after that. They were simply just writing reports about what they'd seen and heard, and these reports got passed around, and then eventually, 300 years later, they were compiled into what we have as the Bible. But these authors say there was something that happened. In that gap from where we paused to where we are, something did happen. It was difficult for any of them to believe. Matthew, who was carrying a fear, he said he saw Jesus alive after he was killed. And Mark, who wrote, we think, for Peter, he writes this, that he saw Jesus alive. And Luke, a doctor who investigated all of this, he says the same thing, that many saw Jesus alive. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, he says that he saw him alive and ate with him. Peter, who betrayed him, says that he saw him alive. James, the brother of Jesus, says that he saw him alive. And Someone observed that, you know, what would your brother need to do to convince you that he was God, right? It's extreme. Paul, who persecuted and oversaw the death of Christians, says that he saw him alive, and that was the thing that changed his life. And he says that over 500 people at one time saw him alive. That's the claim. Not, Not that it's easy, in case that's how it sounds. Not that it's easy, No one was expecting it then either, but as wild as it sounds, as shocking and unbelievable and as category-shattering as it sounds, the the claim was that that is what happened. And you you might feel like, man, that's hard. And I agree. I guess the thing we all have, whether we like it or not, though, is the problem of Jesus. How do you explain where we pause to where we are? Something must have happened. 
One scholar writes this, the emergence of the church rips a hole in history, the size and shape of the resurrection. It might sound crazy and strange, but crazy and strange is kind of the territory we're in anyway. The difference between where we paused and where we are is crazy and strange, with or without the resurrection. But I wonder, I wonder whether you've ever just considered the possibility, just the possibility, just for a moment, just the possibility of it. What if, what if they were telling the truth? Is there any meaning in my life that wouldn't be destroyed by the death that inevitably awaits me? Well, if, and for many, that's a huge if, but if Jesus rose from the dead, if that happened, and it would make sense, wouldn't it, of how we got from where we paused to where we are. It would make sense of the transformation in the disciples. It would make sense of the otherwise inexplicable growth of the church. But if Jesus rose, if that happened, then... Well, then hope enters the story. Because in a world where Jesus rose from the dead, death isn't the end. It's not the final word. I love the story that um, John records in his account. It's the story of Mary. Mary was a woman who'd been healed and delivered by Jesus from horrible oppression and brokenness, and she just never got over it. She never lost the wonder of what he'd done for her. Her whole life turned on the moment that she met Jesus. But here she is in this story, and she's devastated. She comes to the tomb on Sunday morning to dress Jesus' body in spices, as we've seen, only to find it gone. And she runs to tell the disciples the horrible news, you know, someone has stolen Jesus' body. She can't even dress the one she loves with the spices she's prepared. She can't say her goodbye. And she returns to the tomb. And we read in John chapter 20, which should come up on the screen. Read it for me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus is laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken my Lord, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she clearly hugs him, just throws herself at him. And he says, Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and he had said these things to her. I love this picture, this passage many reasons, but a lot for the picture it gives us. It's just a beautiful picture, and I just want to illustrate it quickly. I've got here, this is going to be a tomb, uh, which, let me see what I can pop this up. Here we go. This is a well-used beach tent, but let's just imagine it's a tomb. (laughs) Is that going to stand? Is that right? Is that good? Do you see that? Okay, there we go. 
Good. Have a tomb. And this is going to be Jesus, risen from the dead. <laughs> so Mary, just picture it for a minute. Mary, she's staring at the tomb. She's got back to Jesus. She's staring at the tomb. She's staring the face. The, the, she's staring um, the death of Jesus in the face. Right? And she's, she's full of sorrow and sadness because everything she had hoped, everything she had found in Jesus seems to have just died with him, right? There's no hope. There's no expectation. It's dire and it's horrible and it's terrible. And she's probably super confused because of everything that Jesus had done in her life. And she's gutted, staring there. And all of her hopes have faded And all of her gladness and joy has turned to sorrow and despair and brokenness. And she faces the tomb and looks straight at it. And then it says, that Jesus calls her Mary. And she recognizes the voice. And you can imagine that like her heart sort of prickles with hope, but she just can't let it in. Like, it's not possible. It can't be, cannot be possible. Mary. And, but she knows that only one person says her name that way. You know, the way that he said it when he healed her from her brokenness, the way that he said it when he freed her from the oppression that she was under, when he dignified her, when he raised her up, when he treated her with compassion, when no one else would. She knows his voice. And she's like, it can't be. And then it says she turned. And it's just, I love this image of her turning from the tomb and the brokenness and the despair towards Jesus. And she turns. It's almost like she's just making space for the possibility of this thing. It cannot be possible, can it? And she turns from the tomb. And as she turns, it's like her whole world turns, right? As she turns, it's like the whole world turns. The dark shadow of grief and loss is shattered as she faces Jesus alive, risen from the dead. All of the despair and the brokenness of the tomb turns as she sees Jesus living and alive. All of the hopes that had been dashed turn as she sees Jesus alive. This is an extraordinary picture. And you can imagine just joy beginning to sort of well in her, trace its way through her heart with just unrelenting power, like a wave on the sand washing away every dark footprint. The dark despair of the tomb is replaced by the radiant hope the resurrection. Tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy. The unraveling and doubt turn to the validation of everything she ever thought Jesus was. And he said, what the grave stole in this moment comes undone. As she makes space for the possibility, this thing that she never saw coming and had no expectation of. And, you know, if you hear in this story just the faintest echo of something true, it can change everything. It can change everything because it can become your story too. 
we begin to see our whole lives in the light of Jesus. Alive. And so the Bible puts it in the invitation to us, it puts it in language of things like this, that we go from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, from despair to hope, from brokenness to restoration, from death to life. And we're all invited into that story. What if death isn't the end? What if our lives do mean something? What if we are more than just coincidence and chance, atoms and matter? What if the despair I feel, the hopelessness I feel, isn't the truest story? What if? What if? What if there is a deeper, truer, better story? I remember hearing about... um, uh, the Australian Andrew Chan, who'd been caught smuggling drugs into Indonesia, and he had um, ten. He'd been in prison. He had a ten-year prison sentence, and it was to end in capital punishment. And during those ten years, he became a Christian. And um, he, the, the article writes this about him: Despite protests from across the globe, the authorities decided to uphold the death penalties. But when the day came for them to face the firing squad, something extraordinary happened. The prisoners declined to the offer to wear blindfolds, and instead they stood and they faced their ex- executors. According to witnesses, they recited the Lord's Prayer, they embraced one another, and they sang two songs, Amazing Grace and 10,000 Reasons, before their voices were drowned out by gunfire. And many of you know those songs, we sing them here. 10,000 Reasons ends with these words. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. Is there anything the grave won't steal? It was in Jesus that Tolstoy found his answer. It's in Jesus that I find mine. It's in Jesus risen from the dead that the disciples found theirs. It's in Jesus risen from the dead that those 2.4 billion Christians around the world find theirs. Because after Jesus was dead and buried, his movement utterly destroyed and his followers terrified. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. You know, in this story, in this story, death does not have the final word. And if that becomes your story, You see, there's fear of death everywhere. I read the other day, uh, millennials' life expectancy has dropped by three years. That's me, right? There's fear of death everywhere. And it may even be in here, but it's not in here. You see, hopelessness about the future is everywhere. And it may even be in here, but it's not in here. 
See, lack of purpose is everywhere. Just despondency about what's ahead. Doubt, fear is everywhere. You just have to read the newspaper. It's everywhere. And it may even be in here, but it's not in here. There's a story around us that we live in. The dominant story in our culture is that death is the end. It's like living facing the tomb. Death ends every meaning. There's nothing beyond it. But the invitation of Easter, if you can, for just a moment, just a sec, just open the door a fraction to its possibility, just a fraction to the possibility of it. The invitation of Easter is that you can, like Mary did, move into a story where life, hope, and meaning frame the horizon of our lives. You see, it's a story of the most wonderful hope, larger and stronger than death itself. A hope that speaks to our deepest fears and our desperate search for meaning. It's a story all about hope. But here in this story, hope has a name. Hope has a face. And hope has an empty tomb.